Hola! <laughs> so here we are. Uh, episode number 9, maybe. I'm not sure. 9 or 10. It's the next episode. Uh, if it's episode 10, we should probably draw attention to that. That seems significant, but maybe it isn't, so let's not. Um, but it's definitely the next episode. It is. And that is always significant. First one in a while. First one in about five months. Um, yes. Uh, kind of too busy to take it on over the last while, but we're back now. Uh, we, did, we didn't really mean to go on a hiatus. It just kind of happened in motion. But we're back. It's all good. Um, we were planning on doing a year in review of 2017, but it's uh, it's already nearly middle, April, so it's middle of March, yeah. So it's <laughs> probably a bit late to be doing that. But we will be we'll be catching up with ourselves a bit in terms of like the main thing we're going to be talking about this time. I think is the uh, green space in Dublin, and uh, I just got back That's from a broad um, subject, yeah. I just got back from O'Rourke's Cafe across the river. There, I was talking to Tony O'Rourke and Tony Loud. Um, I had a pretty bad hangover, but Tony sorted me out with a fry up, so I feel like <laughs> a new man now. Um, but yeah, we were talking to them about the Bridgefoot Street Community Garden, the park there, and the NCD Community Garden. And soon enough, we'd be talking to um, Amanda McKnight and Michelle about about the same topic, but kind of taking a broader view of looking at the whole city and the, the attitude of the council and the state towards green space. But we also, I suppose we, there's lots of stuff that's happened over the last few months that we can discuss as well. There'll be lots of little things to touch on anyway, yeah, so, yeah, so as it's but, been a while. Yeah. Before we d- d- dig into the main theme, we can, we can look back on the last four or five months or whatever it's been and kind of the, the, the main thing that sticks out to me uh, in terms of news and it's good news as well is that the uh, uh, the bill to ban all oil and gas exploration has gone through the doll so that's now been banned in Ireland yeah which is a big one so not not re- not uh, restricted just to hydraulic fracturing because yeah, there had knowledge. been a fracking ban not too long before that yeah not very long before only a few months I think so um Oh, you you wouldn't have uh, predicted that a couple of years ago, would you? No, it's, it seems pretty mad in a way. Yeah, but it's for exploratory licenses, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah. it wouldn't necessarily have an impact on existing. Well, it doesn't impact what's going on in Mayo, for example. That's that's ongoing. Yeah, yeah of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nothing new will be started. But it, it's big. It's big progress in a, even even if only on a matter of principle. I mean, it's more than a matter of principle. It's also the practical thing of there's going to be less uh, fossil fuels extracted. Yeah, yeah. But again, to be, as usual, be the. The cranky lads in the corner. Um, we you we had a conversation about this recently, and something else significant that's not so great happened around the same time, which is that the uh, the Irish state managed to weasel their way out of their emissions targets with the, their EU emissions targets because we're farmers. Yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> yeah, saying we're not going to we're not going to scale back on animal agriculture because it's the only thing it's part of our growing economy or whatever. Yeah, um, which just Purely sounds like a lack of imagination. Yeah, lack of action. It's a, it's an economy that uh, you know needs to be. Tra- there needs to be at the very, very least needs to be a plan. Mm. If even if you could have a long term plan to point to, say, we're gonna, the, the, you know, the the farmers who are employed now and make their living off of this are not going to be screwed over, and we're going to have some kind of a plan and just some sort of sustainable work. There's other options. It just depends on where the what's encouraged they by the state. They haven't bothered to implement anything. They exactly. haven't started nothing whatsoever. The, the only initiatives are coming from kind of private enterprise or independent, if you like, independent uh, initiatives, basically. There's nothing... There's very there's basically no help from the state in terms of agricultural work to move away from animal farming. It's not under... It's not even an option for them. But it is possible, like I heard of a... I can't remember what part of the country he was in uh, somewhere out west but he's a sheep farmer and he's switching over to farming hemp because yeah. it's such a versatile crop and it can be used for all sorts of things like uh, in terms of making fabric making making different materials you can make a thing called hempcrete a building material out of it yeah. so it's 
very versatile and it's, it's it's again much more sustainable than animal farming in terms of the acreage it uses things like that so that's just one example but there's it's switching yeah from an animal to a plant i mean it's still uh, probably within the the realm of monocrop culture but at the same time it's going to be far less uh, you know carbon intensive overall yeah definitely so, and if yeah talking about carbon again um like animal farming as it exists now on such a scale contributes hugely to to um to climate change through the production of methane gas from cow farts and one of the arguments that the state representatives used in negotiating this with the eu was that um oh we've got loads of carbon sinks because of our forestry and peatland yeah but the kind of forests that they're talking about are monocrop forests that don't provide nearly as much artificially created very recently created yeah and they're they're cash crops as well they're there to produce wood to produce timber so, so they're they'll not be cut yeah. it takes it takes a very long time for a forest to develop enough diversity of plant life to be a really effective carbon sink as in to, yeah. to really sequester a lot of carbon from the atmosphere yeah so the kind of forestry they're talking about is not very um, it's not it's not effective enough to justify sidestepping these targets and uh, Carlos is having a drink there Carlos is drinking his water there <laughs> that's what that slopping sound is just if anyone's wondering yeah do we leave this in Tommy? I think we do yeah yeah <laughs> people need to know about the dog and um, it's very important because um, he's lovely look at him Um. Aww. um what was I saying there? Yeah, so it's, it's basically lies about the about the. Um, this is a very effective carbon sink, or this is a yeah. carbon sink. It might technically be a carbon sink, but it's not an effective one. It, not enough to to justify continuing farming so many cows. No, Especially, Ireland ranks the worst in terms of making progress on carbon emissions in in the whole of the European Union. Where, as, where as an economy, worst. you know, there's still. A, I mean, there's far less people who are farmers than they were in the past. But we, the the the, the policy come coming from the government and down is that you know. The farmers are extremely important, and and, and they are, you know, but um, well, they are. They, they they make our food, but the, the, we're talking about a small number of people here. Yeah, a small absolutely. number of people who have a lot of land. Yeah, as opposed to like looking what's bad for best for people in all up, up and down the country. It's a very small number of people who have a strong yeah. lobby. Absolutely, yeah, 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 and they're and they're businessmen at the end of the day, you know, yeah. at the head of um at, at the head of a business. So that's the logic that's applied there. Yeah, but um, there's another thing as well, another really unfortunate development. A dangerous development that links into this and that's uh something we'd be heavily critical of i think is green capitalism the notion that we can keep keep the status quo keep the market going and somehow make it sustainable and what's happening now is we're seeing a big push to privatize seaweed as a natural resource yeah and that's kind of using the sort of green capitalism cover up for it because they're saying there's companies like bio atlantis and um who, who want to harvest the seaweed to to replace the antibiotics in cattle feed and to reduce the, the amount of methane that the cow farts put out basically by feeding them seaweed. Yeah. Um, and again, that's just that's just like, you're talking about strip mining the seaweed basically, taking it all, because they're, 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 they're applying for, they applied in Clue Bay and Mayo for an exclusive license to, to take the seaweed. So that means all the locals that have been harvesting seaweed for generations um, wouldn't be allowed to do it anymore, but this company would have exclusive access to it. Yeah. And they applied for it all along the Mayo coastline, and they're currently applying for it in um, where now off in Bantry Bay in Cork. They want exclusive rights for ten years to the seaweed there as well. Um, it's just I don't see how that makes sense to give like someone to give this company exclusive rights over that. It's, it's a privatization logic, you know. It is exactly. So and it's only one company that's the whole bay, like whereas yeah. a countless number of people would have been using that before you know what, ha- what happened in Clue Bay actually is the locals formed an association and they all applied for licenses themselves and put in objections and it, as far as I'm aware the company did manage to get it there uh, the locals retained the rights to to harvest the seaweed in a much more sustainable way as well they're not going out with 
a massive trawler and taking it all up they're taking what they need selling selling stuff on and using it for yeah, themselves that's know. what I was going to ask is you know is that is all that seaweed that's kind of mass um, harvested is going to regenerate in, in what period of time you see stuff like that we, we know this from from the way um, what you call a trawler fishing works and the way large scale agriculture works it, it, you can't you can't take all of something in one yeah. fell swoop and then expect that it'll be there again next year you have to take it bit by bit and leave enough for, for, it, to, for it to regenerate like that's common sense at this stage or you, you think yeah. it would be you know um, but it is it is part of a privatisation drive like you said because I was looking into it earlier as well um, there was a company set up by the state in the 40s called Aramara Chorinta Aramara Chorinta yeah they're owned by Udras Nagailtakta 50% owned by Udras Nagailtakta and they um, they harvested seaweed they still do but they were bought the state's half was sold to a Canadian company called uh, Acadian Sea Plants in 2014 so again we're talking about a natural resource that should belong to whoever needs it wh- whoever lives near it and whoever uses it but and it's been harvested for a long time already yeah and uh, here we have it yeah, just again it's something that was it, it was even a state asset and they've sold it on so yeah and yeah. it's just private companies applying it, for it, it. yeah even by the the taxpayer I'm doing air quotes here for anyone listening the taxpayer logic even by that logic you would still get a return for the taxpayer or something but yeah would, but again you know it's the same as it was with Shell and Mayo. It's everything that is in the public hands in the country, in the state, it's just given to private entities, literally just handed over to them, you know? So that's like, that's a bit of positive news. It's definitely really significant that we've, like that the state has decided to ban fossil fuel exploration. But given the nature of the country, the, the threat to kind of our future stability posed by animal farming is far greater than the threat, in, in Ireland, I mean, um, posed by fossil fuels because we, we probably wouldn't even have that many reserves of fossil fuels left to be exploited whereas yeah it's if, very it's very significant to us yeah yeah but like the the, the fact that they plan on increasing animal farming yeah. is just really dangerous it's the fact that the, the debate is happening and that you see the likes of you know Simon Coveney when, when it came out about the, about the seaweed oh this is great yeah, yeah. We, we'll keep things going as they are now we'll just throw this into the mix that's mm. why it's really important to interject into the debate and say actually no we need to reform this completely not re- reform we need to just change it completely there needs to be just a lot less animal farming I, I wouldn't yeah. advocate for no animal farming yeah I, uh, the scale is yeah the, the, scale I agree, the scale is the issue isn't it it yeah. is it is um, and the style of it the way it's done from yeah. an animal rights perspective, I know the industrial kind of it's it, it yeah. to me when I'm having this conversation, I think of monocrop culture in general. You know, mm. the animal, uh, the same animals is kind of like a slightly more extreme version, but basically within the same thing. You know, yeah, it's a bit more horrific in terms of what actually happens, but it's the same kind of effect ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Um, lots of methane, lots of farts, lots of cows. Yeah, all together. The, re- the like we should maybe make clear why we are we think animal farming needs to be stripped back, scaled back big time is because it contributes massively to how much greenhouse gases are in the atmosphere, which is changing the climate. That's no longer a debate. So we, yeah. do, we know that. We can't act as though that's not happening. That's a, that's a suicide mission, that's what it is. And the government st- say they're acting in the national interest in wanting to p- increase animal farming. It's going to help. It's going to increase our GDP. But again, yeah. it's becoming, research has shown us that GDP is no longer a, pr- a good way of measuring how well a country is doing because no. it doesn't account for inequality. You could have massive GDP and massive inequality and most people would still be fucked, which is the scenario we're in now, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's... It's old hat at this stage, it is, yeah. It is, yeah. So just like looking at it purely from a market standpoint is not going to stand to us. Uh, there needs to be other options. 
And I suppose again, just to bring home uh, why this is significant, we did a when we did the year in review last year, talking about twenty sixteen, we talked about how it was a year of a record breaking year. Twenty sixteen was the hottest year in record. Um, the it was also the first year that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stayed above a certain level, four hundred parts per million. Yeah, it didn't go is, back down. Yeah, hasn't gone back down. Dangerous level. Um, those records weren't broken in twenty seventeen, but twenty seventeen was a record year in other regards. First of all, a bit of good news. Um, it's the first year where we've observed the hole in the ozone layer has started to shrink. Yay. So that's a sign that the ban on CFC gases works. Yeah. And that's really significant because we can show now, yeah, we've done this much damage. Human activity has done this much damage. But when you put like an actual proper ban with teeth on this stuff being used, it works. Recovery is possible. We, we can recover. Yeah. So we just need to actually do it. Yeah. So like decreasing the amount of greenhouse gases you produce based on this safe to assume that that's going to it's going to work yeah now it's it is a bigger problem too to be fair it is it's way more widespread it's not as simple as taking something out of the aerosol can yes yeah, it's something very specific whereas greenhouse gas yeah. is very very general but at the same time you're right it does show that taking action does work yeah exactly that's it yeah. it's, it's, it's not a lost cause in other words no it's, it's we're, we're still well into the realms of damage control now but the reasons why people don't like to talk about maybe if they don't like to talk about climate change maybe the reason why is because it's they they get overwhelmed and stuff, but but you know let's not get overwhelmed because like positives are possible. We just need to yeah. just start making gains now. <laughs> They're definitely possible. We go again, on the on the attack in a sense in terms of like policy from a high level down. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but don't lose heart. It's all very worthwhile. It is. It's all it's all very doable. It, we just need the will to do it, and the the will needs to come from the majority. It's not going to come from. Not going to come from politicians the, or corporations. Politicians, no. corporations. It's not going to come from CEOs. It's something they can go along with if people, you know, they can be convinced. Maybe, but I yeah. think it'd be a hard job convincing them. There needs to be action, positive action from the ground up, and not the top down. And that's something we're going to be talking about later on with Michelle and Amanda. It is. And um, um, was saying there, yeah. So just again to 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 reinforce the kind of gravity or the what's the word, the urgency of the situation. As I mentioned, 2017 did not surpass 2016 in terms of mean temperature, in terms of carbon dioxide. But um, it was the most expensive year yet on record in terms of dealing with extreme weather events on yeah. a global scale. The symptoms of the problem. Exactly. Extreme weather. We're, we're seeing an increase in extreme weather events because of climate change. And Ireland is very badly equipped to deal with that. The infrastructure just isn't there. Like Remember when we had the heavy snow a couple of weeks ago? Just, yeah, yeah, it yeah. took a week for the Tesco near me to get any food back. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was no fresh veg or, or milk or not very little bread for a solid week after it. Uh, and that was for two days, two or three days of heavy snow. Yeah. I was I was stuck inside with my child for three days working from home because uh, we're so badly equipped to deal with it. Yeah. So. And that's like, we're going to see more of that. Yeah. Maybe not snow necessarily, but more extreme weather. Because if you look at it, I was reading a report there that said, if you compare the 90s to the last decade, so 2007 to 2016, um, and you look at a graph of extreme weather events, and extreme weather events in this case are defined as anything that cost more than one billion dollars to deal with. A lot of money. Repair. So that's just we're talking about really large scale extreme weather. So storms, like we saw loads of storms this year, loads of mudslides. If you look at that graph, what you see is from the nineties, comparing the nineties to the last decade, double the amount of droughts, double the amount of wildfires, five times as many storms and a fifty percent increase in floods. And that's without counting twenty seventeen, which was the most expensive year in record. So if you add twenty seventeen to that decade, the, it's just an exponential growth in terms of how many extreme weather events we've had. So, and 2018 is off to a good start in terms of that as well. Like last year, what have we seen? There was 
just in December there was a mudslide in the Philippines that killed 230 people and there was one in Sierra Leone earlier on in the autumn both of them were caused by deforestation or exacerbated by deforestation yeah uh, and then all the storms we've had like what was it Ophelia a tropical storm in Ireland we had a tropical storm in Ireland yeah that, that could <laughs> that's and that's another that. thing that's like a thing now so yeah so yeah just the the, the, the old kind of patterns are changing yeah um, and we need, to, we need to adapt them fast yeah Um. So that's, that's very fast. Like it's crazy. Like it's actually crazy. You see it happening before your eyes. Like yeah. So as well as like just having plans to deal with that kind of stuff, we need to address the problem. And the problem is climate change. And the problem is greenhouse gases. And in Ireland, the problem is animal farming, because yeah. there are thirty percent of our greenhouse gases come from the agricultural industry. Yeah. And again, I'm not like I'd love to get an animal rights activist and a farmer in here someday and have a conversation with them, because I wouldn't be. I'm like. I'm not a vegan, you know, I eat meat, no. I drink milk, I eat eggs, but we can't continue farming animals on the scale we are, it's it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, the, the whole food production needs to be transformed fundamentally, and that, that will have an international uh, element too, because of course, food is very internationalised at the moment, you know, a lot of stuff is imported, and yeah. everything's imported or exported from somewhere, it's nothing is really... That's another big danger as well, another thing I read recently, is if you examine the shipping lanes, right? If you look at the shipping lanes, you can narrow it down to 10 shipping lanes that the majority of the world's food, food import and export relies on. And if even one of them got... Some of them are going through very sensitive areas in terms of um, oceanic weather, right? So yeah, if even one of those shipping lanes is interfered with by an extreme weather event, it's going to have massive impacts on people here and in other countries in terms of like food availability. And like Ireland relies an awful lot on imported food. Oh yeah, which is mad considering how much a lot of the world does. Yeah. I mean, not, not all, but yeah. Like we make loads of beef to export, or in some cases we export the cattle. Like they they recently struck a deal to export. I can't remember how many thousands of heads of li- live cattle to Turkey. Now I don't see how that makes fucking sense. We're going to export a cow, like <laughs> to slaughter it somewhere else. Like why would you do that to the, like fresh meat? Like to fucking like imagine, like they're going to be oh, sent across there in this tiny little container, chock full of cows. They can barely move, and then. As soon as they get to their holiday destination in Turkey, they're fucking killed and skinned and eaten. <laughs> like, why not put them out of their misery before putting them in the container? Like, you know, even if you don't want to be a purely, even if you're not coming at it from a purely animal welfare perspective, like, yeah, like, why, why make it? That's like you're playing with them. It's like torture. Yeah, <laughs> you're getting some sick enjoyment out of like, I don't know, it's mad. Um, I can only imagine it's for freshness, but I don't know. But freshness and it's just money, trade deals, you know. Absolutely, yeah. They're doing with Turkey, our good friends, Turkey. Irish beef has that reputation, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, we're an agricultural nation. We make nothing but cows and animals and send them abroad, and then we can't feed ourselves. Yeah. Which you don't notice because we import so much food, but like. We import everything else. We don't like really grow hardly much veg. Maybe, yeah, small yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I was looking at. I was in Tesco the other day and I picked up a bag of green beans, which my great granny used to grow in our back garden. Me, Nanny Nelson, I remember she used to bring me out to show me the insects and stuff like that. And she always grew vegetables in her back garden. And I always remember picking the green beans off the thing so you could eat them straight out of the pod. Maybe they weren't green beans, sweet peas maybe, but they could yeah. pull the pod straight off. I, know, I know the ones you're talking about, yeah. And I was looking at a bag of them in Tesco and they're from Guatemala. <laughs> why the fuck do we need to bring them in from Guatemala? Like, if you can grow them in the sunny climes of Navin, like, why not fucking... <laughs> it's just, it's mad, it's mad like. Well, it like, is, again, that's nice, something yeah. I was talking to the two Tonys about earlier. He was, Tony Loud was saying when he grew up, in the 50s it was there was more of a social economy people looked after each other and looked after themselves a lot more people could, yeah. you're talking about his father used to grow food at the back and he fed 12 of them off his back garden yeah 
And like I remember, like my great granny would have been of his parents' generation. Do you know what I mean? They did that. If you had a bit of garden, you were growing vegetables in it, you were growing plants in it, and you were if you had excess, you gave it to your neighbours. Yeah. And that's changed with modernisation. You'd we, hardly grow stuff now. I think yeah, people don't really notice how much that's weakened us as a society, in terms of yeah, not just in terms of being able to feed ourselves, but the social benefits of that of like sharing food together is lost now. Everyone looks after themselves only and that's not because people have become inherently more selfish that's entirely down to how our society is organized which is from the top down yeah so we are not allowed to make decisions for it's, ourselves like. it's a yeah there's an overall structural reason for it in other words you can't, i wouldn't go as far as to say the government was much better back in the day but there was there had the push for privatization hadn't really kicked off as much then no not know? at all no no yeah. that came later so there's more the gov- the state owned more yeah so there's just a huge kind of change in how things there was going. a concept of yeah the public good you know and collective which do- doesn't exist anymore i mean it's probably been stripped away since i suppose maybe post 80s yeah, the 80s it's really. when neoliberalism as a as an ideology yeah, took it, off, got, you know? it really got into ireland and loads of countries as well like but ireland amongst them you know mm. the american kind of influence yeah yeah so we've been rambling on a bit there now there's a few things to catch up on there yeah um but we're getting ready now to bring you into our interviews. Yes, pretty soon we'll be, well, let's what we'll reorder things. Maybe we'll play the interview now with the two Tonys. And then after that, uh, Amanda and Michelle will be here soon enough. And we'll be talking to them about our, our main theme this month, which is uh, green space in Dublin, urban green space. And I guess, I think the conversation is probably going to be fairly broad. We'll see. We haven't got, really, we don't really know what we want out of it, It'll except be... for just to examine what's going on. It'll be broad enough, but we're going to talk about the logic of how green spaces get used and taken over in, in the city. It'll be quite general, but something that's relevant to everyone, certainly everyone who's living, living in a city, like good yeah. usable space, like proper public uses for spaces that, you know, in the, in the modern age. Yeah. So I guess the, the points of focus will be the NCAD, NCAD Community Garden, Bridgefoot Street Community Garden and St. Anne's Park. Um, so we'll be kind of talking about those areas. And... Um, yeah, so yeah. here's the Tonys. Here we go. Right, so I'm down here on, uh, on the bottom of Bridgeworth Street near the river. It's a really sunny Sunday morning and I have a thumping hangover. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to get through this in one piece. I'm sitting here in O'Rourke's Cafe with Tony O'Rourke and Tony Loud, who were involved in the Bridgefoot Street Community Garden and the NCD Community Garden, respectively. Um, so, I suppose, first of all, Tony, Tony O'Rourke, um, can you tell me, what, what, was it, what was your involvement in the, the, I suppose, in the community here in Bridgefoot Street and in the garden? And Yeah, just tell us a bit about you. Originally, <coughs> I would have come into this community <coughs> in 1961. <coughs> My parents would have bought a... a, a they bought a grocery shop in Bridgeford Street in 61, and we've been here ever since. So this is 2018. What's that gives me? 50, 56, 57, 58 years here. Back in the 2005, 2003, 2004, we were, we were involved in Robert Emmett, a, a community development project for the area, and as will we, will we form a community project. And which we did and around 2005 2006 we were approached about the site 
where Bristol Street was in the process of being closed up, what they were going to do with it after Bristol Street closed up and where they were going to go with it. The, uh, the plot on Bristol Street. The plot, the, actually, where the park is going now. That size of park. <coughs> so we looked around and we were, the Dublin City Council approached and said, listen, we have an idea that we're going to put uh, two, two, 200 apartments on that site. And what you'll do, your community game would be a 2,000 square metre community centre. And we said, happy days, that this would answer a lot of our problems and we could get that space. So and then we, we, we formed a committee and we started uh, formulating a plan for it, which would include a medical centre, which would include, we say, uh, an area for children to meet, and, uh, 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 children, adults and uh, old folk would meet and sort of uh, sort out the problems of the area. So we were meeting for about a year, year and a half, and we'd formulated the plans. We'd actually planned right up to the colours of the walls, what colour the walls were and what would go on the floor of the community centre. So this has gone great guns, and up to the late 2006, the bottom fell out of the market, and we reverted back that nothing was going to happen. So what they were going to do with the site, and then we were, we were approached by some other, with, by Dublin City Council, I think it was the, we had a lot of problems trying to find exactly what we would do with the site after the, the, the development of the apartments fell down. And we eventually, I think, got in touch with, I think it was House, and I said, okay, we're not gonna do it, we've no money, we can't do anything with it, so what do we do? So they gave us a license to operate allotments, because the allotment had started in the city, and they had sort of looked at the idea. And we'd over 100 people, going in there, doing a lot, because this is with Robert M. CDP, and we were doing, like, you know, it showed us a need that people in the area needed something like this, to do something, that they, if you give them the, 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 the choice, they would like to grow their own uh, vegetables, and that's, uh, and that, like, and do various different things, like, we didn't, we gave so them a plot. The, how did the garden as it was <coughs> recently, how did that get started, how did that develop? came out of this? Sort of well, scheme? there was a, a, a little bit of a controversy between different groups, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the history of that, but, but eventually we went through, because we were, area insurance was covering the whole park, and there was people got, different people got keys, which we had no control over. So as soon as there's area insurance, if something happened, we said, no, this is Robert Emma CDP, said, no, we'll have to step back from this. We stepped back, and then the garden lay idle for about a year, year and a half, I think, or the park. And in the last two, three years, started around 2013, 2014, development started again in the, on it. So, at, uh, during the housing crisis... I'm sorry, when you say development, you mean development of a garden? Of a garden, yeah. yeah. And the housing crisis, well, the housing crisis has gone on, I would maintain, from the 80s, but people would disagree with me on that. But anyway, the, the housing crisis sort of came to a head, and they said they wanted the area for to put housing on it, which we strongly objected to, that had been basically used as a park prior to that, so it should stay as a park. And anyway, this is the most populated area of the city, we said, and we don't have open space. Fair enough. I might just uh, I might bring uh, the other Tony in now, and uh, we'll, get, uh, we'll get back to that, because I want to tell you a couple of things together there. So Tony Loud, you were you're involved in the NCAD community garden just up the road. Yep. Um, now could you tell us a bit about, I suppose, how you got, got started there and what, how it's developed until now? Um. I, I do basic research, okay, and I grew up in an era where there was a lot of social economy in after the war, okay, yeah, yeah. where I remember the allotments, I remember uh, we 
grew for a family. My, my father grew for a family of twelve in the back garden. Okay, so we were bringing in manure and we were bringing in uh, uh, leaves and grass cuttings from the private park, and and we were. Uh, he was growing the vegetables and, and tomatoes and everything. Okay, so uh, I became a lone parent in 1984. So at the same time I was wearing the children, I organised uh, the Ballydermot Youth and Swimming Club in Sean McDermott Street to train local people how to swim. It was a training club. And my hope was that it would gradually graduate, that they would graduate and become life lifeguards and they'd have some kind of certificate because there were people from the university. I'm pr kind of a very practical person. So uh, I... In 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 in, uh, in I trained myself. I, I used to be an international metal trader, so I trained myself as a gardener. Okay, and in the year two thousand, uh, I bought I bought my own house when I was out of work, and I I set up a business, gardening business, which came, which was very successful. Okay, till uh, two thousand and seven, and we we did I did landscaping and that, but. In 2007, the landscaping went. Yeah, yeah. But I had been doing basic research. I'm interested in research. And I came across that uh, no dig method of gardening. And I also know as a trader that waste has a value. Yeah. So I would say every shovel full of compost you make is worth 50 cent. So because of my experience in my youth, I found that there was money in compost so I said in 2007 how can I bring about change for people so I said well we can I'll do research into see can we can I make compost in larger and larger amounts so I put in for I'm interested in social outreach I'm interested in 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 uh, social economy and I was cutting the grass I used to cut the grass for respond housing association in all their places. So I was down in League Step and I asked them could I put in a no-dig garden. Could you maybe uh, describe for a second what, what, what that means exactly, a no-dig garden or no-dig agriculture? Okay, it's basically a four foot wide strip of compost that you put on top of the ground, okay? And you plant from both sides. You never walk on the compost because fundamental to growing the soil needs air so it needs air and moisture so you're actually by you're stopping mycorrhizae which is a string fungus if you walk on the, on the soil you kind of break the string fungus so it helps plants grow so this is the kind of idea that there's air, as well as water and also if you're planting on top putting organic matter it increases the number of worms it's also uh, it would be, it would improve the fertility. So that improves, so you get much more, you got much better growth. So you, you would have set up the garden in NCAD based on this, this principle? Sin, later on I did that, okay. Right. I first, I, I, when I was down in Leek Slip, I went in for Leek Slip and an interest was taken in it by a Portuguese man who grew vegetables in it and who would, would be there during the week. I used to just cut the grass and I would come down and plant the potatoes. But basically he started growing lots of other vegetables. So it was pretty successful, but then it closed, and I came up, and in over here, I, I asked Tony O'Rourke, could I carry on with my research into no dig? 
So we went over there and I discovered the available Bridgeford Street. Now Bridgeford Street. And I, I was there for over a year and we grew half a ton of potatoes and about two and a half thousand carrots and other vegetables. And I just gave them to the people. I just shouted to people in the flats, you want, pota- you want potatoes, you want carrots? So I kind of gave away the stuff. And I also got invited over to Poland with the group Barca to study social economy. So I went over there and researched. I do basic research. I've been to... And social economy, could you just maybe explain briefly what that means? Social economy is where people... To me, where people come together and they contribute work and they create wealth and that, that wealth then can be given back to the people or to people in need. So that would be my understanding. Yeah. That my... People working for each other. Yeah, people yeah. for each other, but but with 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 an aim to create wealth, to make it's it sustainable. Long, and long term. So, uh, I I worked for a year over there, and then that place closed. So I went down and I put in a raised beds into St Alden's School because none of the schools in the area have any green spaces, seemingly. So are very few of them. So I I I put one in there, and when I was doing that, I got invited by the students of. Uh, NCAD, Rian Coulter and Fabian Strutton. They were on the president and the, uh, of the student union, right. and they in, they invited me up to. They had that was going to be my, my next question. Actually, was like, well, how did you wind up in the garden? So it was the students that invited you up, right? Uh, yeah, the, the yeah. College itself. No, it was yeah. the students. Yeah. Okay. It was a derelict site. Yeah. It was a totally de- de- derelict site, which and is separate to the college. Would they have had? Did they ask anyone's permission about that, or did they just go ahead and go? This needs to be used. Or? Oh, oh no, 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 no. They, 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 the college were well. As far as I was concerned, we before we moved in, we had a meeting in the. Co- we had uh, a kind of reception in the college, where people were invited to to throw out their ideas of what, how the garden should be set up. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I went in on the basis that I could manage the garden and that I could handle the social outreach because I'm interested in people on the street. So I went in there and I thought all my Sundays had come together. So I had been, as a, I'm a gorilla composter. I make compost anyway. So I was making compost with my friend Joe Byrne in Bloomin' Baskets out on his site in Ballybottle. He allowed me to make small compost. So what I would do is I would bring manure out there and I would bring compost back in. So we started to put it on, we started to clean the ground in NCAD and put in big long beds. So in the last three and three quarter years, I suppose we have, uh, that I've been in there, we have cultivated about an acre of ground. And we also made, we've made probably up to 500 tons of compost from so lo- locally sourced material. Veg waste from the market, coffee grinds from about 10 restaurants, uh, horse manure from the Jarvis, uh, leaves from in the blue bags and, and, and from Griffith Avenue and, and the parks and, 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 and so we're pretty, I'm pretty industrious so. Seaweed. And seaweed, we, we've collected huge amounts of seaweed from Dollymount oh, yeah. over the winter months. So the basic interest then is, is to extend the growing seasons and to grow as a kind of a welfare project which will demonstrate the fertility of the soil. And the other thing about no-dig gardening is when you take something out, when you take, when you 
take out like potatoes or, or, or you take, take out cabbage or anything like that. When you clean, it's, instead of digging, you put more compost on top. You just keep There's building up the, the you're building up the up the fertility all the time. You're That's keeping a major problem facing the world now all over cider. Well, what making compost is actually a, a real answer because it captures carbon. There's carbon sequ sequestration in in, in, in in compost, and it it uh, it, it it's ninety percent weed free. That's one of the big benefits of it. Okay, that. I just want to bring uh, Tony O'Rourke back in there as well. I asked the two but what was the impact of the garden outside of the boundary of the garden on, on the wider area? What's the... Well, we say at the moment now, we, we have a lot of different groups coming in. We work with the Bridge Project in uh, in Francis Street, who, who are you know, lads on, on, lads on Nashies, on probation. We involve, we say, the Simon community, Mendicity, uh, Merchants Key, like guys who are sort of in rehab will come out and they will dig there. There were various different schools in the area will come down and d do bits of work. NCAD is obviously involved as well. Uh, but it's just the garden is there or the park is there for the people. That's the way we promote. And the, my sort of idea, like I've got a thing here called a manifesto for a community park, which we, we developed with a guy called Conor Sheehan, who was an architect. And he came and he met with the group and we produced this uh, uh, manifesto, which involves various different, what we would hope the park would bring to us. The whole point is that, that it's, it's not just, it's going to be there for a while and then move on. Our, our sort of thing is that in the long term, we would hope that we would develop a sort of cooperative management basis on the various different um, residential er uh, areas in, this, in, the, in around the park. The likes of Oliver Bond, Bristol Street, uh, Pier 19, Traders Wharf. There's a load of different different uh, building buildings that would have uh, tenants, and it's basically for the tenants, for the people who who live, walk, live and walk in the area, and we will be doing that work for them. So is that basically that the people who use the, the garden or the park would be the ones who have a say in how it develops and how it. Pre yeah, precisely. That's what we would hope that we would develop. It, like, that's what you call it, the, the plan. And plus the fact that we're the most visited area in, in, the, in the country. Like Guinness is just, what, about, I suppose, a quarter of a mile away from us. So there's a constant flow of tourists through. And our sort of thing, like the people in the area have looked at, we say, oh, well, basically, maybe I have looked at the area. And like, the place doesn't look, it's not a welcoming site. Like anywhere I've ever gone in the world and I've visited places, they've always been around them. They've always sort of, I'm not saying beautified, but it's, it's, they're, they're nice places to visit, but like you know, I remember about ten years ago, a guy talking to me said, "Like, have you looked up your street at two o'clock in the morning? Would you walk up it?" And my sort of thing was, "No, I don't think so." And that I think was that, like, it should be more welcome. And we're not we're, we're like you were, should, you were talking earlier about the distribution of green space in the city. Very poor, like you know, we, we, especially within the two ring roads. The ring roads being the north circle and the south circle. This is the most populated area of the of the country. And the green space is fairly nil, and I think it's point, point 0.9 or something of a metre we have where it should be, I think it's 15 metres, or no, 1.5 metres or something. No, it's not, it's less than that. I can't remember exactly, I think it's... Per person. Per person is about three or four metres, and we've got, I think it's point 0.6 or point 0.5 or something of, of a metre, so it's less than half. Yeah, yeah. 
less sorry less than a tenth of what we should have. So like you know, if you want to develop a city, you must develop the people. And in order to, to invest in the people in the area, because it's people that make a city, not buildings. Yeah. I think the Dublin City Council lost the idea, and they, they, they sort of think that it's to get as much uh, money out of, out of what's there, instead of investing in people. If people are happy and they're, they're welcoming, well, then your city will prosper. But I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking on that. So what seems to be happening now then is, so the garden as it is, these would have made recommendations for what needs to happen with this. Yeah, well, we're, we're, the, we're going to develop a park. A park the, the park will be about two and a half acres. I think it's a hectare, roughly a hectare of land. And there will be a community garden involved in that. That would be our main. And there was about 100, no, sorry, there were about 50 or 60 gardeners at the moment involved in that. And the, 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 as, as it grows, we would hope that we, we could uh, encourage the City Council to invest in more allotments around the space and to create more green space. And it doesn't have to be a massive amount of space. It can be little pockets all around the city. And what is the, what is the council's plan for it now, though, as it stands? And there will be a park. There's definitely going to be a park with a community space, with, with a community garden. Uh, so I bring Tony Loud back in there to tell us what was the... What was the ongoing agreement with NCAD and what changed in the recent past? Uh, I mean, I heard that you just came up one day and it was, there was a lock in the gate and no explanation. Is there, has there been any notion as to what's going on there now? Or? Well, there was great, uh, there was great support for the garden from Declan McGonigal, who was a director. He was the director. Yeah, yeah. And there was a great support uh, for the garden by Bernard Hanratty, who got who would come into the garden regular and and involved me in meetings and uh, so and was very supportive and, and of of the, the, the what I was doing and building okay and making compost and so uh, a kind of vacuum occurred when he left so uh, health and safety guy came that, started sorry, coming that in would have been, uh, that would have been a, no, well, well, it would have been around uh, September, September of last year, and then uh, I was working away, and uh, so I became aware that you know problems were, were kind of seemed to be happening. Okay, there, there just seemed to be problems, and uh, so uh, I was told things, various things, okay, that I wasn't allowed to make compost. And so I just carried on and uh, so on the, in December uh, I decided that I'd just carry on and wait for the new director to come in, okay, because so uh, in December the 20th the gate was locked, so I kind of withdrew. I said I, I, I can't be involved because I, since I was invited in by the school, students' union, okay, and that other societies in the college were interested in using the garden, I said, I'll just stay away until matters are resolved. So, so far, this, uh, the new director moved in around end of uh, January. So I've had two meetings with her, and she's going to prepare some kind of charter for the garden okay. with the board's approval. And I think it has to be, and to bring it... To, to try to bring it back as, as part of the, to make it an integral part of the campus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so to open a door. 
from the gar from the campus directly into the garden, which is really what's needed. Okay. So there is a plan to kind of keep it going forward. There's a long-term plan for. It. Oh, I'm sure. I'm positive about that. Okay, I would have very positive. Uh, uh, feelings by, for, for the, 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 the director. So she's positive because I've worked with her up at Emma. She worked, she was, a, she was in Emma and uh, we did a project up there about two years ago called the Brysdale Project, growing courgettes. So over a three week period. So uh, I very, we both have good memories of that. So I, I'd say, you know what I mean, it'll, you know, you have to put a structure on it. It has to be, you know, there's a, there are all sorts of things now, insurance and everything will have to be yeah. worked That's something on. something we were, we were talking about, and we'll be talking to Amanda and Michelle about it as well, is that there seems to be, usually there's an attitude towards community gardens that they're a short-term thing. They're just, oh, there's a bit of space there, so we throw it in while it's empty, but something else is going to come along. Well, yeah, I, so it's, it's good to hear no. that it, there being at least talk of it being established long Okay, the problem... I was vice chairperson of the Dublin Community Growers. And the problem with gardening is that it, to become a gardener it takes at least five years. There's no shortcut. You have to, you have to, to do your research and you have to plant and see how it works, okay? Because plants grow and die. and. And you have to have experience of the weather and the time and the time, and, and it, it requires a lot of effort. There's a lot of work involved in gardening. It's not something that you can just do for an hour this week and then give it up for three weeks and come back after three weeks. It needs consistent effort. Mm -hmm. So that's what, what my forte is, that I, can, that I was very interested in the garden and I would go every day to the garden. And you really need to do that to immerse yourself in all aspects of the garden. Making the compost, making the beds, making paths, cleaning. And it, 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 it put the, and then look at the rewards because it'll teach you. It's kind of reverse osmosis, you know? Can I just bring Tony O'Rourke back in there? To, you're talking about the long-term plan for NCADs. There is a long-term plan that you've worked out for Bridgefoot Street. Yes, yes, what, yeah. What's your, what's your feeling on how the <coughs> council are responding to that moving forward? How is it looking for the future? Depends on who you're dealing with in the council. I think uh, some, of the, some of the people in the council are very responsive and some people are sort of like, you know, this is about, what do you call it, a, what do you call it, a, a sort of a, a changeover sort of system and we're going from one thing to another and it's a... It's an idea that's going to work today and will it work tomorrow. And I think there has to be investment from Dublin City Council. And that, to me, long-term investment. And they must start looking at the future of their city. I think what, what, I think in Ireland what the problem is, everything is on a five-year plan. Like I was amazed that we say this uh, thing for 2040 came out there from the Fine Gael crowd a couple of weeks back. But it's all five-year plans because in five years they're gone and that shelved. So, like, we have to start looking to the future. What we're going to provide for our children, or our children's children, and there's no future there. Like, you can take the environment and we say what we've suffered here in the last couple of months of different weather uh, patterns, and how do we, how are we going to sort of uh, fix that? And I think that's this is where we start fixing, because what we're what we're giving to our children now is a mess. 
So, like, how do we sort the mess out? And this is where we start. And slowly but surely, by planting and by looking after things, and by treating treating the environment a hell of a lot better than we try to treat it, have treated it. And like that, that'd be my view. That I'll be gone in, say, 15, 20 years' time. But what's the children like going to be getting after I've left? And like, as in all things, and education is probably the main sort of thing. How do you go from here? I'm probably going to leave it, but probably looking too far ahead. But the short term or the long term plan I would have for the garden is that it develops, and it develops with the help of the people in the area. And that's what it should happen. I don't know if you want any more than that, do you? No, no, that's, that's no, perfect. So you can nearly wrap up there, but just to ask if, if anyone wanted to, I suppose, get involved in the gardening here or yeah. NCD, what, what, how would people start to interact with that or where would they find us? I think, look, don't look at my where we are. I think look at your space, where you are, yeah. and get on to your local council or get on to your local authority and say, listen, what's the chance if they can have it in Breach Street, why can't we have it here? Or if they can have it in NCAD, why, can't, why isn't this being developed here? Why, is, why isn't something being done? And I would take it city-wide, the whole lot. And let's, let's look at it. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. Can I just say, I grew up in the 50s when I discovered that my father was a taxman, so he would tell me, oh, when the big house came up for sale with a lot of land, the only people who had the money where the church was the church because lots of money was being, being donated, was being given into the church, okay? So, and then they would take land, the Christian brothers would take land and they'd improve it, okay? And they had, this, they, they, they had the skills and they had the, the long-term uh, involvement of, of the priests and the Christian brothers in creating wealth. So, my view on social economy is, as a secular individual is, that we can, by going out even on the streets and people becoming active and collecting simple things like aluminium cans. I'm sure in the last eight years I've collected thousands of euros worth of aluminium cans, which I've sold and, and used the, the, the money. So, I think... I would take the inter- I, I, I take an independent approach. Okay, to me, I think people should be more self-reliant and not reliant on the corporations too much. Okay, because they're not going to have the long-term interest. They they'll be promoted and and everything leads is going they're going up the ladder and they're promoted to the level of their incompetence. So. That's, that's the norm, so I think people really have to become active. So, that was the Tonys, and we're going to have a conversation now with the... Uh, I would have played the thing there, by the way. Lots of Tonys. This is slightly... <laughs> Slightly anachronous uh, order of things here, but yeah. for you, the listener at home, that was most definitely the Tonys uh, and myself in the recent past. Um, we're sitting out here with uh, Michelle from Dublin Central Housing Action and Amanda McKnight, who's a, an independent community gardener. And we're going to have a conversation about green space in the city and, I guess, control of land, urban land, and who it's controlled for and all that kind of crack. And break down how who gets the, where the power lies, basically, with yeah. that space. 
And uh, I told a friend of mine recently what we were talking about this time. They asked me why, why are you getting a housing activist on to talk on an environmental podcast? And yes. uh, Good question. Yeah, so I'm asking the now. same. Um, <laughs> I know. What initially made me make the connection was looking at St Anne's Park and their, oh yeah, uh, like the playing fields there mm-hmm. that are zoned for public use are now being sold to build luxury flats. Yeah. And we've also had the city manager Owen Keegan saying that we should use, um, subpar as he calls a green space in mm-hmm. the suburbs to build high-rise housing. Yeah. Um. So it's directly linking that way, but it's also um coming from the idea that basically if if anyone who's doing anything to fight any kind of equality in a way is an environmentalist to some degree. I first came across this notion in Naomi Klein's yeah. book, what's it called? This Changes Everything. Oh yeah. Which is because we can, we can prove now that inequality is a driver of consumption which is a, dri- which is a driver of climate change. So if you're doing something to address inequality, you're addressing the root causes of the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think it's important that we talk about all these things kind of in tandem. So I guess, first of all, um, I guess Michelle first, if you want to tell us a bit about yourself and why, what your background is um, and yeah. why you're here. So I've been involved with Dublin Central Housing Action for about probably three years now. Um, and the reason I got involved was I'm renting pretty precarious and I've just had, you know, the odd trouble with um, my landlord and kind of generally what Dublin Central Housing Action does is we try to help tenants organise and give them support to fight things that their landlord might be doing to them or they're like even if they don't have a landlord because maybe they're homeless we kind of try and help them negotiate the system um of homelessness which can be very uh really disempowering obviously for people but like very like yeah so do a few different things um i think another thing i was involved with before this kind of first activist thing i was really involved in with uh, was um the water protests Mm-hmm. against Irish water that's kind of how I got involved in any kind of activism really yeah. um, so it's kind of very local based because um, I don't know I think when you're when you're talking about housing you kind of need to take into account everything around the area you know which so like, it makes sense to be talking about environmental it's about local residents basically local residents yeah and that's what the, that was going on the water like everyone did come out for that that was the good yeah. the really great the well, one of the reasons it and went, it was all local groups, easy. you know. Yeah, it was, it was great. Very local groups. Very local groups. Um, so that's kind of what I'm at, and you guys asked me on because I know a little bit about housing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I would have seen or would have some knowledge of the way Dublin City Council works and does things from mm. more housing perspective and a maybe planning perspective. Like there's a lot of stuff going on recently with on board Planala. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about it. I think it was maybe a year ago. They they kind of changed the way on board Planala are are able to operate. So I think um, de- developments of a certain size you usually would go through the council mm. and then go through on board Planala. Now they just I think they just have to go straight on board Planala. Yeah. So the local councillors yeah. don't really get much chance to object, and it's very expensive now to make an objection. Yeah. Uh, and they're they're saying this is to fast track housing, but what's been built is stuff like massive student residences that have like tons of people crammed into a room and they're tiny shared toilets and all shared the, toilets, yeah. shared really rooms, just and really expensive. Like I don't know anyone who can pay nearly a grand a month. It's a total scam. Yeah. It's, it's such a, a scam. scam yeah. It's such a scam. So that kind of development, like local communities have no, uh, well they've less power now to kind of get involved in. Yeah. Um, planning or in, in like objecting or having any input into a planning in their area like yeah and that's just happened in the last year or so a, a recent example of that in relation to St Anne's Park is um 
Owen Murphy, the mm. Minister for Local Government and a few other things, who's the one who appoints the CEO, he appointed Owen Keegan. Oh, okay. um, he issued what the councillors are calling a gagging order, basically told them to stop discussing the planning application yeah. in St Anne's Park. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think we need to get into a bit later on, is yeah. like what, okay, we elect our councillors, but what power do they actually have? It's yeah. becoming apparent that they don't really have it very much. Not anymore, They can't anyway. even talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we get on to that, can I ring Amanda and Jonah tell us? Um, yeah, sorry, I what your back end is. Shite it on for a while. <laughs> That's what we're here to shite on. That's <laughs> the name of the game. Um, so yeah, I'm Amanda. I'm originally from Canada, and I've been travelling for about six years. And um, through that time, I've seen a lot of different community garden spaces throughout Europe and the world, I guess. And um, so before I came here, um, I actually came here to study with a herbalist, and I knew I wanted to get involved in community gardens in Dublin. And so I reached out to a few people before I arrived and every response was kind of like, um, kind of a letdown, I guess. Like it was like, there's not much happening and people were like not engaging. So I, it actually took me a long time to actually find a garden that I actually want to be a part of. Mm. I found that unusual to begin with, first of all, because any place I've ever been to, I was able to source it before I went. So it was kind of like I'd arrive and I could get involved right away. Mm. So once I started to get involved, um, I f- initially started with Tony Lau in the NCD Garden. Um, and I liked his approach because he was like um, like socially conscious as well. So he was actually looking at gardening, not just as somebody who wants to get involved because they're interested in plants, but also as like a perspective of um, how to help situations with like homelessness and that. And, um, empowering people and creating change in society and I didn't see that from the other gardens that I kind of approached as well because everybody kind of yeah and like it was like you would only go there if you wanted to like plant something do you know what I mean and it was like there was no actual um change and now I've seen because we're locked out of the garden um that a lot of it has to do with uh, power and control over space Mm. and the fact that there is no culture of community gardening in Dublin I think that's kind of like um, a lot of people won't say that, but that's like they're limited examples, really. You know, yeah. Mm. And um, the fact is, is that lots of people aren't aware of the gardening space in general. It's kind of like secret garden culture, and Mm. that has to do with once these gardens start to gain power in terms of success, um, and so projects can actually develop. It seems like that's when they're kind of taken over, and Mm. um, those spaces all of a sudden don't exist. And so that's kind of where I guess I'm at right now. Um, yeah, so yeah. the issue really is c- c- who has control over the land and yeah. mm. for whose interests are they working? Yeah. Um, You're allowed to continue with the, the project as long as it's just completely insignificant and has, has no kind of sway whatsoever. Yeah, it's yeah. not making it much, much yeah. change like around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, it, but then that also creates this perception from the public's uh, frame is that if these spaces have never actually had a chance to develop properly, so you don't see the benefits that they have on the community because they haven't been able to, like if you look at places like Germany, for instance, like I was involved in the uh, Princess Garden, which is the biggest community garden in Berlin. And um, that has like, it involves so many levels of society and um, it's a huge developed place and it's respected. And that's the thing is there's no respect right now for these green spaces. It's seen as temporary spaces to kind of clean up an area and then they can be taken over. And that's the problem. Do sorry, were you going to say? I just just that just <laughs> occurred to me when you were saying that you know they're seen as temporary spaces. They can mm-hmm. do you think or have you ever seen in other places? And do you see it here? Mm-hmm. The um, that they can be used as a sort of way of gentrifying an area in the way this art or the community art quote unquote could be used. 
go in there and make it look pretty and uh, you know a few years later we'll, mm. we'll develop the place Has, have you seen that like the garden's been used as a sort of tool of gentrification um, yeah Green maybe wash. like yeah um, with I'm just using the base like the NCD as an mm. example um, because it's the closest garden like I'm involved in other gardens but it's kind of the closest garden that I have to hand and um, like it was a trash spot and it is in an area that is like it's that's kind of like brushed aside in yeah. Dublin mm-hmm. um, and that they kind of want to redevelop and in a way that suits the city yeah. and so um, and that's the city's image you saw that you could see that around Christmas time yeah. okay so at Christmas they had like huge clearing out of areas and that was the council like literally um, like uh, barricading over areas where people were sleeping at night so there would yeah. be like vacant properties oh, and yeah. they were coming and actually welding over areas closed because they knew people were going in there but uh, tourism was coming yeah and they yeah, didn't yeah. want tourists to see that so they would do a huge sweep the, the Bridgefoot Street Garden they had um, the manure for compost and it had been sitting there for a while but the council again Christmas was climbing up so they came with big trucks and cleared it out mm. and it's a huge cleanup yeah. cycle it's like yeah um, sh- like maybe we're being used kind of like we get these green spaces to clean it up but then once it's cleaned up then they want to redevelop over it because oh thanks you did the job for us yeah yeah, yeah. it's so. kind of the, the same fear of like if you're renting a place you're less likely to fix something because then you're increasing the value of yeah, exactly. a house that doesn't belong to you and yeah. can be taken away from you at any moment mm-hmm. you don't yeah, want to jinx yeah, it, it either advantage, yeah. mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paying that well because then I'll get an eviction out of but that's I mean that is the government's attitude I think mm. and Owen Murphy, who's the minister for local government, his junior minister is uh, Damien English. Oh, Damien English. A, a fellow English. Navin man. And it was him that said... Um, <laughs> Who played Ga with my brother. So. Yeah, really? Wanker. Yeah. Absolute <laughs> wanker. But uh, he said, well, it, we need to stop talking about homelessness because it's making Ireland look bad. Yes, he said it. that. Oh, That's such a like. fucking Navin attitude mm. though, isn't it? Like, don't talk about it. Don't talk about <laughs> it. If only he hadn't double-crossed Enda Kenny, he would have been a uh, higher-up minister at some stage. Yeah. Poor fella. He's, he gets sent on to Vincent... Well, he used to when Vincent Brown was <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he used to get did, sent yeah. to the dogs. To get destroyed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and he just looked like a schoolboy, being like, I'm, I'm a good boy, why am I here? Like, <laughs> Getting <laughs> ripped limb from limb by yeah. Vincent Brown, yeah. <laughs> good man, Vincent. But that, that's the, the logic in Ireland. It's very top-down, it's very authoritarian, it's very, you know, the, the lo- we were, I was talking earlier about the logic of privatisation, and it's applied to everything. Yeah. Everything is the logic of, so you were saying about, you just cleaned up for someone else. You didn't even get paid for that. Like, yeah, in the sense that like, you did that job, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, I know that's not why it was being done, but, you know. Mm. Because it's a valuable thing to do. Well, yeah. yeah, and it makes sense. Like, yeah. And it's also, like, especially as a garden, like, if you see an area that is, has been abused, like, so... A, p- a spot that's in the middle of a city that's been used as a trash area yeah. that's been abused like that's abused land and what we're doing in a garden is like allowing people to form a community but also we're improving the quality of the soil and the environment so why would that be covered up and plastered over or like a slap on the wrist for you to be in there mm. before you have to leave because they want to take over the space like it just doesn't make yeah. any sense like especially if we're supposed to be focusing on environmental issues as a country yeah why is dublin so far behind you oh, look at cork cork's actually pretty far ahead but why is dublin so behind cork? cork's actually pretty progressive yeah mm. kind of a more progressive culture down there in terms of even just from the city's perspective yeah. like what's allowed like how long does it take things to get through bureaucratically in dublin compared to other cities in ireland yeah, yeah. do you know like why is it any different here i've heard that before from oh. 
For a friend of mine who was, used to build uh, uh, wood burning stoves to send mm. over to Calais and stuff like that, and he was on about trying to get gas bottles off Dublin City Council. Nah. Weeks of nothing. Then he went to Mayo County Council within a day. It was like, yeah. grant. <laughs> Go there, there's loads of them, we don't need them, please take yeah. them off. You know, yeah. It's just yeah. so easy. Mm. Yeah, it's funny mm. to see how different, uh, you know, different councils just operate mm-hmm. totally differently. Yeah. yeah. But the, the country as a whole is, I just read, they were ranked lowest in the EU in terms of our emissions targets. And um, reneging on them also. Yeah. Existing That's ones. A bit strange considering that mm. I think most people now are starting to realise how severe a situation this is and that we need to lower our emissions and all that. So to me, that's a symptom of the top down nature of the state and every council in the country basically being defanged and declawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and because ultimate, ultimate, ultimately, everything can just be simply vetoed by state organisations, even yeah. if there's some yeah. level of council level input. Yeah, and that's that's something that really pissed me off recently was um, Owen Keegan saying that, again, we were talking about capitalism using every crisis to just, to further the status quo. He said that we Advantage need to... Advantage for privatisation. ...need to build yeah. uh, high-rise housing on green space in the suburbs. And uh, that made me look into the structure of the council. That they're, they're based on the council manager model, which was imported from the States in the mid-20th century. And it basically means that the... The mayor is now just a ceremonial position. Yeah. The councillors are basically like a board of directors. And then we've got the CEO, who is Owen Keegan, used to be called the city manager. And so the councillors that we elect, they make the policy, but they've no power to implement it. Mm-hmm. The CEO is the only person who can implement it. And he's appointed by Owen Murphy, the minister for local government. Um, so he does the enforcement, in other words. So ultimately, it's, it's that, that one man has all the power to implement any of these decisions, or to not mm-hmm. implement them, depending on what the party wants. Um, oh... Uh, and so yeah I just same, wanted to, I wanted to talk about that like what's can you give a perspective on that like is that is that in any way justifiable to take up green space for housing or surely there's alternatives to that yeah uh, it's that's a very thorny one but yeah you mean people need green space near their housing even if they're building a bid on it you know mm. like what's it you've nowhere to go outside your house you, you get very depressed very quickly like so of course yeah. kind of people housing is not just about bricks and mortar it's about people's lives and yeah. the environment they live in you know so neighborhoods neighbor yeah neighborhoods like amenities around that kind of it's like space for the kids all that kind of stuff um so i would say like did he mean specifically green spaces that were designated as green spaces yeah and they was, were kind of talking, parks and smaller spaces. i think he was talking about redesignating in the suburbs was it? And yeah, so okay the, and the excuse you use hanging out of a quote here there are too many examples of amenity open space land in the city council area that, quite frankly, do not offer significant amenity value. Okay. So, instead well, of improving them, instead let's just of get rid yeah, of them. like that, exactly. that sounds like the the amenities aren't been funded properly. By that's the it. Exactly. Is exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I think better, I don't think there's much justification really at all there. I mean, there's there's enough uh, vacant space and you know just like rubble and. You Absolutely, know. yeah. Loads you know, there's yeah. loads of rubble. Um, do that, please. Sort that out. That's an eyesore on people. People like the green spaces for the most part. Like, I yeah. don't really hear people complaining about parks ever. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? I don't know. <laughs> just parks. only city managers. Yeah, That's yeah. it. They're, they're just Scrooges. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, would, I wouldn't really think there's much justification for that at all, no. to answer your question. Um, <laughs> um, I think it's, yeah, privatising it all. It, yeah, they're not even going to build affordable houses from the looks of it. 
No. You no, know, it, it'll be affordable, quote unquote. Yeah, which is not affordable to anybody, I don't no, think. No, it's crazy. Like, who can afford that? Like, so, it'll be yeah. only 450,000 or something. Oh, no, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's grand. Yeah. Ask my dad for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, dad. <laughs> 10 avocados. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's like in the Sopranos, $1,000 a bag of ziti. <laughs> 45 bags of ziti. We could start talking about fucking bags of avocados now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they were, you know, even trying to build some affordable, you'd make, maybe be like maybe a little bit can be built on but to be honest I don't think it's nice land obviously and it's mm. in like the suburbs yeah. quote unquote I imagine this is not going to happen in you know Temple Oak it's going to happen in like some yeah. field in uh, Kulak somewhere that kids mm. have been kicking balls and cans around for too long they're going to be like oh yeah. plop a load of shit in there and uh, yeah, let's expansion. charge people uh, because it's near it's near the airport <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah because people yeah. really like living beside airports they love it <laughs> yeah. they love it yeah it's everyone's favourite thing jump off the plane into yeah. the house on the way home Easily, easy way to get out of the country so yeah I don't think there's maybe any justification for that I thought it was fairly see through what he said the logic of it you know it's yeah. like oh this is it's the, it's the usual privatisation thing defund something so it's, it yeah. works like crap and then privatise it that's basically what that is yeah. you know? yeah. it's been with everything you know yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely point. that makes a lot of sense yeah uh, so, we're kind of coming to the natural conclusion there so I suppose like should I suppose use if um, Amanda if there's anything if anybody wanted to get involved in community gardening or wanted to kind of start an initiative in their area or like look into doing that where do you think in Dublin would be a good starting point for people to, mm-hmm. to um, well the tricky thing is is that like a lot of these places um, it's really hard to get in contact with the people who run them because mm. they're only open on like certain days um, mm. So not to discourage people, because I think that more people need to get involved in this sort of stuff. And I feel like as well, the fact that the city keeps trying to um, like take over these spaces or make them seem like that you shouldn't be there, it kind of discourages a lot of people to get involved. Mm-hmm. And the thing is with the community gardens is that like um, anyone, even if you are a grower um, or you're not a grower, can get involved because it's a place to build a community and to be outside and improve your wellness. So I'd say like... Um, I know like Bridgefoot Street, it's an accessible one. Um, they are mm-hmm. still open. Um, so they were having issues with, um, in terms of being kind of, I guess, built over as a park, mm-hmm. um, but they are still running. And I think that's actually a really good spot for people just to get started. And um, Michelle, so you're involved in Dublin Central Housing Action. Yeah. Um, is there a way people can get in touch with that if Absolutely. they want to? Um, yeah, I think the best way to get in touch is probably via the pay- Facebook page. Um, it's just Dublin Central Housing Action. You search it where you should be the first thing that comes up. You can shoot a message in there um, or you can email us, Dublin Central Housing Action at gmail.com. Um, and we kind of have various events. We have a support group for people having housing issues. That's usually on every Friday um, from one until three in Hill Street Family Resource Centre, which is just near Fibbers. <laughs> if that's where you're looking for. That's, how I, that, that's where Hill Street is, uh, just off Parnell Street near Fibbers. Um, that's on, yeah, usually Fridays. And then we once a month we have a community dinner. We just had one yesterday, actually, oh, yeah. uh, in Jigsaw. Um, that's, yeah, we're going to keep going with that every month uh, where it's, uh, you know, it's nice space to kind of meet people place to drop in. chat drop in and we also have support table at that for people who need it because not everyone can make it to a friday afternoon i can never go to that either like on friday afternoons so um but if there's any of those going on people can find out through the facebook page yeah, cool. absolutely excellent. keep an eye on the facebook page <clears throat> excellent um we normally record a little bit of an outro but i think we can probably just leave 
the episode this of that. Is, this is the That's outro. Yeah. Good to <laughs> um, I'm tired. Uh, you want to get on with me hangover? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see you next month, folks. See you next month. <laughs> nice one. Thanks very much. Go!